Turn with me to Matthew 12, starting with verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this generation. This is the word of the Lord. I want to spend a couple of minutes explaining to you what happened right before this in the passage that we just read. Right before this, Jesus has been doing miracles. He healed a man with a withered hand in verse 13. He healed everyone who followed him while the Pharisees were plotting to destroy him in verse 15. And in verse 22, he cast out a demon. So then the people start asking, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? We read that in verse 23. And the son of David is a name the Jews used for the Messiah. So they're asking if Jesus is the Messiah. Why are they asking this? Well, they're asking because he's given clear proof through his divine miracles that he is the Messiah. But the Pharisees then accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, that is, Satan. Jesus' response is <clears throat> that if he were doing it by the power of Satan, then it would be evident because a house cannot stand against itself. In other words, there would not be lasting good fruit from his work if he was doing it by the power of Satan. Finally, Jesus gives a severe warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it's the Pharisees attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the power of demons that prompts his warning. So that's what happens right before this text. And then, how did our text start? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Luke 11, we read of the same event. It says that they were demanding a sign from heaven. From heaven. So what are they asking for? Well, what they want is proof, clear proof that Jesus has come from God, right? Seems obvious enough, seems easy enough. 
It's kind of similar to uh, Gideon asking for signs from God, right? You remember that in the Old Testament where the judge Gideon asks for the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry and then for the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet? <clears throat> he just needs something to confirm his faith, right? This is what the, this is what the Pharisees want, right? Well, wrong. That's not what the Pharisees want. It's exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees want. We want to think that that's what the Pharisees are after. Just confirmation of their faith. But we know that's not what they're after. <clears throat> the way we know is uh, because they would have believed in the miracles Jesus had been doing already if they were actually interested in having faith. But we don't want to think about that. We just want to say, it's, you know, wasn't it kind of petty for Jesus not to show him a sign right then? I mean, he could have, he could have proved it right then, and the question would have been settled and everyone would have believed. It's kind of like, you know, a little kid taking his ball and going home. Isn't that how we think of Jesus when he responds and tells them that a evil and adulterous generation demands a sign? That was kind of rude. All they wanted was a little miracle, right? Or a big miracle. A sign from heaven. After all, these people knew about signs from heaven. We read in Exodus 19 the miracles that they were familiar with. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Now imagine if Jesus had given a sign like that. Would have answered all the, all the Pharisees' questions, right? Surely they would have believed if he had done something like that. But the truth is, this sign was not requested to confirm their faith. This sign, a sign from heaven, was demanded in order to excuse their unbelief. How do we know that? Well, we know because they've just seen miracles. They've seen him healing. They've seen him casting out demons. And they've said, yeah, he's doing it by the power of Satan. Any excuse that they can have. We know that the, the miracles were amazing. It's almost silly to say that because a miracle is by definition amazing, right? A miracle is something that can't happen. So when it happens, it's amazing. Well, the people were amazed and they said, is this the Messiah? We also know that they would not believe if he performed a sign like that because of how they respond to his future signs that he gives. He continues to heal people. 
to cast out demons, raising men from the dead, feeding the multitudes, giving sight to the blind. None of that's good enough, is it? Why isn't it good enough? Because they had hardened their hearts and refused to hear or see what was right in front of them. Jesus performing miracles by the power of God. And we know, because of the text we read earlier in the service, they shouted all the more, Crucify Him! So how did Jesus respond to their demand for a sign? An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And Jesus is not simply talking about the Pharisees here. He speaks of the entire generation being evil and adulterous. The word adulterous probably has two meanings here. Obviously, in every age, and certainly in our age, part of the wickedness of the people is sexual sin. But having read the Old Testament, we, as well as the Jews, should understand Jesus to mean more than sexual sin. Jesus is speaking using a spiritual metaphor that God had been using for hundreds of years, speaking through the prophets. I'm going to read you two verses, one from Hosea 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And Jeremiah 3.20, Surely... As a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So in these two verses, and all through the Old Testament, we see the Lord speaking of his people, the Jews, as being married to him. And he describes when they turn from him to other gods and idols as them committing adultery. That's how Jesus is describing the generation that craves a sign, an evil and adulterous generation. The Jews at this time aren't worshiping idols, though. They're not worshiping idols of stone and wood, and obviously neither do we. But instead, they claimed to worship God while demanding that he do what they want, give them a sign. Is this what we do today? Say that we worship God and yet demand did he do what we want? When they demand a sign, they're saying that what God has done through his son, Jesus, is not enough to convince them to worship him. And Jesus continues by saying, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, what's the sign of Jonah? Do you all know the story of Jonah? What happened to Jonah? One of the kids wants to answer. What happened to Jonah? Nobody knows. Oh, oh, what happened to Jonah? He got swallowed up by the whale. Yeah, exactly. And then what? Did he stay there? He stayed in the, in the belly of the whale? Uh-uh. He didn't stay there. 
He was there for three days, and then what? The great fish spat him out again. Verse 40, we read, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is prophesying his own death, burial, and resurrection here. Whenever Jesus uses the words, the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself. And being in the heart of the earth means that he will be buried in a tomb. And what do the three days and three nights mean? Well, it means it's not going to go longer than that. It means he's not going to stay dead and buried. If you come back on Sunday, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. But today, at this service, on Good Friday, what we're celebrating is the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus Christ. In other words, we are celebrating the fulfillment of the sign that Jesus promised in the text that we read, the sign of Jonah. We already read the account of his death earlier in the service, but now I want to read part of it to you again from the Gospel of Matthew. Starting in verse 41 from chapter 27, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Take note what they are saying while Jesus is giving them the sign of Jonah that he promised. This is the fulfillment of his promise that he would give them the sign of Jonah. Will they believe? Would they believe if he came down off the cross? No, they would not believe. They demanded a sign from heaven. And when Jesus gives them the sign of Jonah, how do they respond? Listen to the fulfillment of Jesus' promised sign. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon. That's the time our service started here today. Look outside. You see it? It's light. Imagine yourself standing outside. See the light. And then noon. All the land is covered in darkness. Picture this. Can you picture this sign from heaven? And about the ninth hour. It's been dark for three hours in the middle of the day. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Does that text sound familiar to you? Does it sound like what happened in Exodus? Darkness and the earth quaking and the power of God, a sign from heaven, the sign of Jonah. And do the people believe? They did not believe, even when he gave them the sign of Jonah. The Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will condemn this generation for its unbelief. What did the Ninevites have? Well, the Ninevites had Jonah. We continue in the story of Jonah. Jonah, when he's spat out of the belly of the fish, goes to Nineveh and he starts wandering around in the city saying, In 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. In 40 days, all are going to be destroyed. That's all Jonah said. That's all the Ninevites had. One guy wandering around the city saying, Forty days, you got forty days. And what did the Ninevites do? The Ninevites repented in dust and ashes. What about the Queen of Sheba? What did she have? Queen of Sheba had heard that there was a wise king in a faraway country. That's all the Queen of Sheba had. And she believed. And she went to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But what of the Jews? They had much more than the Ninevites. The Ninevites had no miracles. Jesus came with miracles of mercy. The Ninevites had only a prophet. But Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. But the Ninevites repented and the Jews did not. The Jews also had much more than the Queen of Sheba. She'd heard of the wisdom of Solomon and she traveled to see it. But the Jews had wisdom himself among them. They didn't have to travel to see for themselves. And Solomon could only show the Queen of Sheba wisdom. Jesus offered wisdom that leads to salvation. 
Yet the Queen of the South believed, and the Jews didn't. The Jews had all the law and the prophets pointing forward to the promised Messiah, and when he came, they rejected him. And so, they will be condemned on the day of judgment by these others who believed and repented while knowing so little and with so little evidence. How does Jesus end the conversation? Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. These are people who have worked hard to cleanse themselves. They've worked hard to make themselves holy without the help of God. They have, by sheer force of will and determination, stopped committing their besetting sin for a time. But what is the fruit? What do they fill their hearts with? Nothing. They leave them empty, swept out and cleaned and empty. They sweep their hearts out and refuse to accept Jesus. They don't want him. They don't need him. And so what happens? The demon returns with seven others that are worse, and they find the house empty, and they enter in. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So what about you and me? Do we recognize this? Have we had it happen to us before? Are we doing it right now? Maybe you've determined to kick some bad habit or sin in your life and been successful for a time, only to have it return with a vengeance worse than it was before, and at the same time started lying to people about it to cover it up, because you don't want to admit that it's back, worse than before. And so your state is worse than when you started. And now you start hiding it more carefully treasuring this sin deeply within your heart, unwilling to let anybody else see it or know about it because you don't want to have to confess it. Either you'll kick it on your own power or you'll treasure it. Certainly not going to allow Jesus to enter into our heart and kill the sin. We know what it's like, don't we? You know what this is? 
It's demanding a sign. Just like the Pharisees did at the beginning of our passage. We're, com- we're very, very familiar with demanding a sign. And we know just how to do it so it doesn't look like we're justifying our unbelief, but rather looking for encouragement in our faith. That's why we're, that's why we're asking for a sign, right? Because we want encouragement in our faith. Well, there's two kinds of people here today. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and those of you who have not. And both groups are guilty of demanding a sign from heaven. As Christians, we do this by attempting to make deals with God just like the Pharisees. What are these deals? I'll do what you command, God, but I'm weak in faith. I will care for the poor. But first I need a better job because I have to have enough money to make sure that I won't become poor. So give me a sign. God, I know what you've said about disciplining my children, but I can't trust you until I see a sign. Because my sister is living in rebellion. You haven't called her to yourself, and I'm afraid of losing my children. I'm going to keep them for myself until you give me some sort of sign. Maybe if you would change my sister, then I'd have the faith to believe and trust you with my son. But until then, I'm going to protect him from any discipline that could hurt him. Or maybe we say, Father, I know you've created us to proclaim your good news. But really, to him, he's the only guy I actually know and get along with at work. I can't risk that. The only relationship that I have 40 hours a week. And plus, I could get fired. I need a sign. I need a sign that he's really, really interested, that you're going to guarantee this is going to work before I'm actually going to talk to him. When I see that sign, then I'll believe. Then I'll have the faith. Or maybe we say, God, I know... You sent your son to die for the sins of your people, but not this sin. I need to beat this one myself. I need to clean my heart out on my own. My own power. I need a sign before I can believe that I'm forgiven. And we find ourselves praying, God, please help me beat this sin without your help. That's the sign I need. 
But is it not enough of a sign that the Holy Spirit has pricked your conscience? That He's given you His commandments and His Word? He's given us the signs. And He's called us to believe. Not just acknowledge the signs and say they're not enough, but to acknowledge the signs and believe. The Pharisees didn't deny the miracles they saw. How could they? There's that lame guy walking. You know, there's that blind man seeing. Oh yeah, they acknowledged the miracles, but did they believe? No, those signs weren't enough. And that's what we do. As Christians, it's also what non-Christians will do. We've seen this. You'll read it in the news. You'll read it in the Reader's Digest. Oh, the wonder of it sections. They'll say, there's, I don't know. I can't explain it. It's just, I was stuck on the railroad tracks. The train was about to hit me one moment. And the next moment, I was standing 15 feet away. I guess somebody's out there watching after me after all. You heard those kinds of things? Or with the tornado? The miraculous salvation from the tornado when there's no chance of survival? And they acknowledge the miracle. But is that a belief? Is that faith? As non-Christians, you might demand a sign any number of ways. You might say, I can't believe in a God who would allow all this evil in the world. Or I refuse to believe that God would judge people and send them to hell. I'm not interested in serving that kind of God. We've heard this before, haven't we? How is that demanding a sign? It's saying, I won't believe in you, God, until you remove evil from the world and change your character to allow sin in your presence. That's the sign I want, God. Until you give me that sign, I won't believe. Just like with the Jews... How they received the sign of Jonah. The sign that is demanded isn't the sign that God has promised. But what sign has He promised? Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, he will remove all sin from the world. And if you haven't believed any of the signs he's given you up till that point, 
Oh, you'll believe when he does that. You will believe when he removes all sin from the world. And it will be too late. He will bring unrighteous sinners into his presence, forgiven by the blood of Jesus. If you die before he comes and cleanses the world of sin, you will stand in his presence. And he is a holy God and he will judge you and you will believe. But it will be too late. The signs he's given are written on the sky, in the stars. They're written on our hearts, in our consciences. And they're written in his word, the Bible. And the signs he's given us are proof that his promise is true. What is his promise? It is the promise of eternal life for those who believe. It is the promise that God has sent His Son into the world and that Son has died on a cross in order to make us clean. And whether you're a Christian or not, there's only two options. There's only two options for me. There's only two options for you. Either you will look at the sign of Jonah and say, but I need to see a sign from heaven. And if that's what you choose to say, you'll end up like the evil and adulterous generation of the Jews. And having heard the message of peace today, and having rejected it, you'll end up worse than before. But the other option you have is to place your life in God's hands, saying, Father, I forsake this world. It has nothing for me. My only hope is in you. And if that's how you respond, the promise of God is forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and the power to live according to his promises. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray.